0: It's Dr. Stu's podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbine, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And this is podcast number, what is it? We're we going to call it 200 or 201. I think we're going to call it 201 because we want to do something special for 200.
1: I think you're just going to have to call it 200 because uh, we've already promoted uh, we'll 200. We'll
0: do something special for 201 then. And I'm here as usual, actually not as usual. She's been gone for a couple of weeks with the best co-host in the business, my friend and colleague Bliss Young, Bliss, how are you this morning?
1: I'm good. I'm I'm definitely still trying to get used to being back.
0: Well, we're going to catch up with you in just a second, but first we yeah. can, you can reach us at uh, I'm, my website's birthinginstincts.com and Bliss is uh, birthingbliss.com. Bliss is on Instagram at uh, birthingbliss. Midwifery. Oh, birthing bliss midwifery, and you can reach her at bliss at birthingbliss.com, and I'm at birthing instincts on Instagram and Facebook. Well, Instagram takes you to Facebook. And um, you can reach me at askdrstu, that's A-S-K-D-R-S-T-U, at uh, gmail.com. And anyway, you can find it, you can reach us through our websites. That's probably the best way to reach us. Um, I have a book out, Fearless Pregnancy. It's been out for 11 years now. You can find that through our website or Amazon. And I've got three published papers out and you can find that through my website. Uh, So here we are. So Bliss, welcome back. Welcome, welcome, welcome.
1: Thank you. Be careful with your papers because it makes noise on your screen. yeah,
0: I'm right on top of my microphone. Thank you for telling me that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you.
0: I have a small desk. Okay,
1: so I have been gone from my house for five and a half weeks. So my boys got COVID right after Christmas Went to my brother's, which I think I did a podcast while I was there. Um, And then I was home for one night. And then we went to Hawaii for two. And then I got home and turned on my phone and found out that one of my very dearest friend's husband died very suddenly. Um, And so I've been at her house. And the other day I came home and then I had a birth. (laughs) And I came home from the postpartum visit and I was driving up the 405 and I literally, Stu, I'm not joking. I had to like, remember where I lived. Like, I was like, wait a minute, where's my home? (laughs) It was the weirdest feeling. So I have been in my bed the last couple nights and I like, you know, opened all the mail and unpacked my stuff and did the laundry, all that stuff that you do when you get back from a trip. And, um, yeah. So i literally really just feel like I'm just now kind of landing, but I'm really happy to be back with you. And, um,
0: yeah. And I'm really happy yeah. that you got to have some time with your boys.
1: It was really great. It yeah, was saw, really, really saw some great. Pictures.
0: You did a lot of stuff. The only thing you said you didn't get in with some deep sea fishing or something like that.
1: We didn't get to fish and we didn't get to go and do like the sunrise at the top of the, um, volcano. Cause they want it. They want to charge you $200 a person for pretty much any excursion that you do. And so we would be paying for them to drive us up for that for 600 bucks. I was like, I can drive myself up, but I couldn't get um, an appointment. So we had to give that up. You
0: you have to have an appointment to go up there.
1: You have to have an appointment. And originally someone told us that the best thing to do is go up there and then you get to ride bikes down the volcano which i thought would be really cool for the boys but they're not doing that because of covid
0: because well, bike, um, bike riding is <laughs> <laughs> bike riding is dangerous
1: <laughs> maybe because there's not enough people there's not enough tourism happening right now so not, but we got to do you but we got to do a bunch of stuff and uh we had a really lovely time and it was beautiful and we were right on the ocean um, thank you again to the Rubens who gave us uh, their family condo for a week in Maui. Um, just such a generous, lovely gift, and it was so homey. It was really, really beautiful and healing for us as a family. Um, so I really enjoyed myself.
0: Yeah, I was fortunate enough. I got to on Kauai, I got to do the bike ride from the, yeah? uh, the volcano.
1: That um, sounds fun. It was
0: great because it's like 20 miles and it's all downhill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> That's exactly.
0: perfect. perfect bike ride for a guy with bad knees. So it was, it was great. yeah. Well, anyway, welcome back. It's good to have you back. I can't wait to next Thank time I, I can see you and give you a in-person hello.
1: Me too. But, um, I wanted to go and, and listen to the podcast that you did without me, but they weren't on the podcast app. So I don't even know what you've been talking about for the last couple of Well,
0: weeks. they are on the Rumble app. And if you can, you can find them on rumble.com and put in birthing instincts, but we are fixing that. That was a glitch that happened with the transition from assistant A to assistant B, (laughs) you know? um, Yeah, I I will. I'll just leave it at that. So some things fell through the cracks when people retire, they leave. They sometimes retire and leave long before they actually retired and left so yeah. we'll, uh we'll just leave it there but um we're fixing that and so that's exciting um that those things will be back up and they'll be coming up, they'll be popping up should be if you subscribe to it on your podcast app then they'll be popping back up at the top of your feed again uh, right. hopefully this week and we've got right. we've got 195 96 97 98 99 so there's, there's, there's at least five that that we're not um, didn't didn't come up. So it's been a while. And the last two I did by myself, right?
1: Yeah. And I don't,
0: it's amazing to me. I, I I plan these things out ahead. I sort of make a, I make a little list like this of things that I want to talk about. And, you know, it just, I, for whatever reason, I could just, I just talk for an hour and it just, the hour goes by so fast. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so we should probably get into it today. Cause I promised to talk a little bit today about uh, midwife licensing. I promised to talk about the, the injection that people are all talking about in relation to pregnancy. Okay. We're avoiding using the trigger word. So we'll just call it the injection. Can we
1: say the V word?
0: You can say the V word, right?
1: You can say the V word.
0: There's a lot of V words in our, in our profession though.
1: I can say vagina though. No problem. And vulva. And vulva. (laughs) The other V word we won't say. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. You know, I don't like to play that game, but it's sort of it's right now it's just a fun thing to play the game. And then, um, I want to talk, and then there was a video, a new uh, Netflix documentary I wanted to bring up and stuff. So I want to first start because I did have a birth last week and it was my last birth for about five weeks, unless I get called to a birth or I get wow. a last minute breach or something. And I wondered, I want to talk to you about this. And then I saved a bunch of letters that people had written me over the last few weeks that I really wanted you involved with. So I saved them. So we're going to try to get to those first, but I want to talk about this birth real quick because I wanted to know as a midwife. I, you know, I, I was at birth with Beth, and woman was doing beautifully. It was a beautiful. She was laboring, first baby laboring, head down, in the tub. Got to where she, she no exams, no nothing. Idyllic setting, birth photographer, gorgeous. Listening to the baby, heart rates fine. She starts to get the point where she's making the the uh, animal guttural pushing sounds, and. I you know, I have her feel with her fingers and she says, I think it's right there, and I check, and it's sort of right there. And we listen to the heart rate, and the heart rate drops to like 80 to 90, and then comes back up again to about 110. It was about it was about 140, and then comes back up to about 10, 120. And with the next one, it drops again to 80, and it's like staying down a really long time. And so we get her out of the tub, of course, and we put her on the bed. And the heart rate's down. It's like 80 to 90. And, you know, I tried rubbing the baby's head to see if I could get the heart rate to come back up again. And it doesn't come back up really well. So I grab a vacuum and I put a vacuum on and get the baby out. Just idyllic setting this idyllic birth. And suddenly it just went south. And there was no nuchal cord, no short cord, no real explanation as to why that happened. baby came out. Fine. Apgars were eight, and nine, but the heart rate was down and longer than we like. And I said to Beth, I said, "What would you have done if you didn't have a vacuum?
1: Transport if it wasn't if it wasn't something that an episiotomy would fix?"
0: Well, it wasn't quite to the level of an episiotomy yet. Right. But God, transporting, by, by the time that happens, you, you you know you theoretically, if there really was a problem and it's not just a positional thing or whatever. Wouldn't you end up with a baby that's potentially really in trouble?
1: Um, Potentially, but, you know, I've seen babies um, go a lot deeper and a lot longer in the hospital on a continuous fetal monitor with no problem. I think our standards are the standards of getting the baby transported, you know, Um, and most of the time it's been fine. Did you guys change positions several times? Well, we got her out, well, to the just tub. Get her out on the bed on her back, not
0: right away on the back. I think it was on her side initially. Mm-hmm. And it was still, you know, it, it just wasn't coming back to where it was yeah. and everybody, you could see the look on it on the dad's face and everybody's face. And then, of course my heart, you know, starts to race. inside. Yeah. I try to be cool, but I, you know, it's, I don't know what I look like. I think uh, it was videoed, So someday I'll look at the video and see how I did. But, but, so the question that, that Beth brought up is, you know, because Beth and you have been with me dozens of times where I've used a vacuum. Yeah. Okay. Why mm-hmm. can't you guys do that?
1: Yeah. You brought that up with me.
0: <laughs> right. Why valid. shouldn't you guys have a vacuum in your kit, and, and rather than take a chance on getting a really bad baby, put a vacuum on and then deal with the consequences afterward. I mean, I, or, or work on Sacramento or whatever state you're in and say, you know, why is a vacuum only a skill that an obstetrician can do?
1: I guess, cause there's so many potential complications from a vacuum.
0: Yeah, but, but the complications from a vacuum are not something that an OB can fix, right? It's a complication of the, for the baby theoretically,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or maybe a, you may be slightly bigger tear, but so what, all right? Or you cut an episiotomy, but I'm just saying, why not allow a midwife who's going to be attending a birth anyway to have this tool? Okay. So that's, that's my, that was my thought. Okay. So best is why don't you order me one? Oh, okay. Did you hear what I said?
1: I, I, I extrapolated.
0: Yeah. Why don't you order me yeah. one? All right. So, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think it's something that should be brought up at the next, uh, you know, California uh, Association of Midwives meeting, or 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 in Sacramento at something. It's as to why a vacuum is not something that that a midwife could use as a last resort. If you want good outcomes, be nice for them to have that that tool.
1: Well, I mean, you know, the last time we did um, uh, NRP, NRP, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we're doing intubation and and epinephrine and you know all kinds of shit that feels very medical to me, and we're allowed to do it and actually encouraged to do that now. Putting on a pulse ox, which obviously there's nothing wrong with putting on a pulse ox, but um,
0: yeah, but putting in putting in a, a CPAP or, or putting them on, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that's quite medical and complex in my, in my perspective. Um, so if that is.
0: And, va- clean, and, vacuums, and vacuums really aren't that complicated. You no. I, could, t- I yeah. could teach you to do a vacuum on uh, on a, on a uh, simulator in 10 minutes.
1: I'd like that because, you know, if I'm someplace where it's like, you know, Africa or something, um, I definitely would like that, uh, skill set. So
0: Yeah. Yeah, You know, maybe at the next time I do a breach with Sophie and her mom, I should I should bring a vacuum and 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 just do that. Anyway, it was just a thought because the birth was and then it was fine afterwards. Everything was fine. But but it was uh, it was that moment where I know that I can get a baby out. As a matter of fact, when she was in the tub, I looked at her and I said before the heart rate went down or anything like that, I said, you're going to do this. You're going to have a vaginal birth at your house. Because I knew for a fact that that should that happen, I could get a baby out.
1: Was, Was it a VBAC? No. Oh yeah. Okay. Just a just a primat. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, just a quick thing. I got a, I, I just got a, a, a Facebook message this morning. It just came out of nowhere. It just said, "Hi, Stuart. Thank you again for flipping my baby. I will never forget that unique experience. Caden will be five next month." Oh,
1: that's lovely.
0: Just came this morning. It's like, why? It was just, that's so nice when you get something like that.
1: We love those. Um, And I just want to let you know, those of you who are on Zoom with us today, love to have you guys here. Um, If there's any questions or comments that you guys want to do in the chat, I will be keeping my eyes on that. So um, love your participation as well.
0: Okay. So here's a letter that I saved for you. Um, this You're is so for, special. Well, this is from Jordan. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they want, they want your, I they mean, they're, they're asking for your opinion. And, and so I can't, I, I'm not going to give, your opinion. You give <laughs> your opinion. Okay. My name is Jordan and I'm a recent graduate and newlywed from Houston, Texas. I enjoy listening to your podcast and can't thank you enough to if She's on for creating this platform. My husband and I are 23. Oh, 23 <laughs> Oh, oh my god! Those days. and I wanted to start a family in the next year or two. I want to do a natural birth or a birthing center. And my husband is fully supportive of my choice. I just discovered that my blood type is O negative and my husband is a positive. I was reading that this is one of the combinations that is non, that is incompatible. And that the Rogam shot is used in these cases to prevent the mother from making antibodies I know that it is not a big deal with first pregnancies, but it could be in the second or third from what I have read. That's really smart. We plan on having three kids. With you having experience being an OB in the hospital, how do you think they might go about my situation? What questions should I ask? Would they try to rule me out as a high-risk pregnancy in my later births? I also want to know what approach Bliss would take as a midwife. Okay, let me give some facts here, first of all. 15% 15% of the population is RH negative. So 85% are not. Um, in the Rogam era, RH sensitization occurs in less than one in a thousand births. It used to be before the Rogam era, it used to be 10 to 20% of babies would be RH sensitized in a, in a pregnancy. So there is this mixing of blood that goes on.
1: I didn't um, know that That's interesting.
0: Yeah, I just uh, these things stimulate me to go do some research. Mm-hmm. Um, but only 17% of, I don't know how they know this number, only 17% of RH negative women who are exposed to RH positive blood will develop antibodies to it. So not every time that there's a maternal fetal bleed, uh, will, will you develop antibodies to it, but they give rogam. RhoGAM began in 1968 is when the first, they first began using it.
1: Postpartum though, right? It was only given after the baby was born then
0: that I don't remember
1: yeah it? I think that, I think that the 28 week one is more modern that's a more modern advancement like the, that we've started to do that but anyways keep going
0: well here's what I wrote to her I said thanks for asking this question and we'll bring it up on a future podcast just today first being rh executive does not define you as high risk so get rid right. of that yeah just I dislike just that moniker also you and your husband are not <laughs> incompatible. in any sense. I just wanted to say that to her too. I love it. There is a very small risk of future baby's blood mixing with yours during gestation. Normally there is no mixing of maternal and fetal blood. Standard recommendation is to get a rogam shot around 28 weeks if no sensitization has occurred. So in other words, at at 28 weeks, you normally have your blood drawn in routine standard medical care and and midwifery care. You get a CBC and generally some sort of glucose screening at that point, either a one hour postprandial or a fasting blood sugar or a hemoglobin A1C, whatever your midwife wants to do. At that time, if you're Rh a negative person, you should also get something called an antibody screen. And that antibody screen will tell you that you have no antibodies and therefore you, you might want to consider Rogam and then you go through the pros and cons of that. If you've already been sensitized to RH because you now have a positive antibody screen to RH, then there's no point in giving the rogam at that point so that you don't want to get it if you've already been sensitized. All right. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. But are you doing standard? Um,
0: Anybody uh,
1: screen at 28 weeks? On
0: everyone who's RH negative.
1: And then you, and then you give the shot at the next yeah, visit.
0: Then I would have to give them the shot at the next visit.
1: That's not how I've been doing it, but okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's rare. I don't think I've, found many people, but it's just a common sense thing to me, to if they've already been sensitized, then you need to observe them a little more closely. But if you give them the ROGAM, then, and don't check to see if they're sensitized, you will never know if they were, because if you check an out-of-body screen within about eight weeks of giving a ROGAM shot, it's going to be positive because-
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay.
0: Um, if no sensitization has occurred, which can be checked by a blood test a few days before, or you could have them come in and have their labs done in like three days before their prenatal appointment. And then yeah. have the results when they come in for their prenatal appointment and get the shot, that would probably make more sense too. Mm-hmm. Um, there is very little risk from this shot and must, most women accept it, but whether or not you do is a personal choice based on inform, true informed consent. In the midwifery world, we give you the best info we can and let you decide. In the hospital world, they will strongly recommend the shot. After baby is born, they will check its blood type. If baby is RH they will offer you a second shot. Again, this is a common thing with parents having different RH factors and it is not high risk unless you become sensitized, which is very rare in our time. Okay, and it is, as she said in her letter, it is significantly more risky um, if you've been sensitized for the subsequent babies, not for the first baby. The first baby might have mildly excessive jaundice but second, third babies could actually get what's called hemolytic disease of the newborn. Yes. So, um,
1: what, so do midwives, if, what do
0: midwives do? How do they do it?
1: Yeah, pretty much the same. I I, I was just taught that you give the shot at 28 weeks if, the, if you know, informed consent if they want it. Um, and you do the antibody screen at the beginning of pregnancy. But... I think it's, it's simple enough to just shift that around. Um, the other thing uh, I'm wondering from your perspective is if someone did, let's say someone did get sensitized in their first pregnancy and they come in and they do that antibody screen um, and it's positive.
0: At 20, around 28 weeks, you mean?
1: No, no, no. Oh. A brand new pregnancy. So they oh. got it. They got sensitized in their first pregnancy. They come to you for a home birth you do the normal screen and they have antibodies. So it comes back positive. Um, they should be monitored now. That is a high risk pregnancy.
0: Well, there is a, there is a thing with one of, I'm not sure which company it is that you can actually do antenatal NIPT testing and they can tell you the blood type of the baby. Yeah. And if the blood type of the baby is RH negative, then, then they're not high risk.
1: But if, they're, but if they're not, then they would be. If
0: the blood type of the baby is RH positive, then they're high risk and they need to be followed very closely uh, by maternal fetal medicine. They may need, um, you know, amniocentesis to check the bilirubin levels and do certain things. Again, I'm not up to date on how they treat that. I haven't seen that in years and uh, rare occasions they used to do um, uh, transfusions. They would do uh, intrauterine transfusions. They would take a needle and inject it into the umbilical cord and transfuse blood into the baby because the baby's Mm -hmm. undergoing this hemolysis inside to get the baby to a viable point, at which point they would then deliver the baby, most often by C-section because the baby's gonna be extremely premature.
1: So if she um, if she does the Rh she does the Rogam at 28 weeks and the baby's tested after birth and then she can make an educated decision about whether or not she wants to do the Rogam um, after probably. then yeah. she doesn't really have any real I mean the statistics are so minimal that she doesn't really need to be yeah concerned and I've not really
0: read anywhere that there's any sort of downside to getting Rogam um, as far as you know, there's uh, what's in the rogam or getting some disease from the rogam or something like that. So it's not a vaccine. It's not like uh, um, where you have to worry about that there's something in it that's going to, you know, injure your baby or anything like that. I mean, there's obviously preservatives in it. There's always that, but I don't think there's mercury or aluminum or anything like that you might see in in some of the old vaccines. So
1: it is a blood product. So there are some uh, religious practices that uh, doesn't, they don't believe in, in taking something like a blood product. Yeah, and then they,
0: and then they don't. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Next letter. Um, so thank you. Um, that was from Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, this letter is from Jolene and uh, I'm not sure where Jolene. Oh, this is the letter from Jolene and a whole bunch of other midwives who signed it, but oh, she, cool. kept, she was catching up on the podcast and heard you bliss speaking about a PDF you have for prevention of preeclampsia. Do you have such a thing? Like a handout that you give?
1: Um, well, I think I have a standard of care in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of nutritional and lifestyle. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Can you um, either send me the link and I will get it posted or I'll I'll, I'll send it to all these people um, so that they can get a copy of that?
1: Send it over to me and we can talk about it. Sure. Yes. Okay.
0: Fair enough. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, there's a lot of a lot of people signed that. Okay, next one from um, let's see, Mary. Hi, Doctor Stu and Bliss. I started out as a birth doula and then began studying midwifery. Ultimately, I decided to go back to the doula role as I love being an emotional, physical support to moms, and feel that it lines up well with my personal personality and gifting. I have realized since trying to get back into the doula world that there are not as many organized opportunities for apprenticeships as there are in midwifery. Do you have any suggestions for one ways to get more experience as a doula before launching your own independent business?
1: Mary. Mm. Um, I think um, there are a lot of non I don't know where she lives, did you say? Uh, it doesn't say. Yeah, there are a lot of nonprofits, at least here in Los Angeles, that um, people can get access to free doulas. Um, some of them are things like in um, women who are incarcerated. Um, some, some are for minorities, um, uh, young women. So there are a lot of opportunities to. To give your service away. And I think that if you have the ability to be able to do that, you can get a lot of experience. Also, I do know that some of the more um, experienced doulas sometimes do uh, have apprenticeships because they um, have a lot of knowledge, but they're, they're tired. <laughs> so they could use a young doula to do some of the more physical work, um, and maybe go earlier or stay longer and then they can train them. So I would say if there are doulas in your community, uh, community that have been practicing for a long time, I would approach them individually and just say, Hey, I'm new. I would love to support you and learn from you. Um, are you open to this? Um, but it's going to, you know, apprenticeships is a lot of hard work and hours without any pay. And so I think you just have to kind of set your mind up for that and then approach people.
0: Yeah, sounds like being a um, midwife student as well. A lot of hours and no pay. A lot of
1: hours, (laughs) yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that, Mary, because I don't know enough about the doula world and how people get their training. I know that they go to, they have doula schools or whatever that you have. I know that we have one here at Benny birth has one, I think, but, but um, I don't know how you get experience other than, than volunteering to do stuff like you said, and reaching out to people or, or putting it out there that people who weren't going to have a doula and you offer to, you know, through midwives or whatever else, patients who can't afford a doula, you contact the midwives in your community and say, listen, if they want a doula, I'm willing to do it for free to get the experience. And then that's one way you could do it.
1: Okay. Yeah. Great.
0: Okay. So this was a big topic that came up about three weeks ago that you weren't, you know, since you weren't around, but it's about to be licensed or not be licensed as yeah. a midwife. So mm-hmm. I got, I got a whole bunch of stuff I want to go through, but I chime in as we go through this with your, with your thoughts, because it's really something that I, 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 I struggle with because you know how I feel about being licensed by the state. It's like, I don't like I told my my kids all that long time ago, not to ever, if they could get a job that they love where they're not licensed by somebody to do it, that would be the best thing possible because when you're licensed by the state, they have this thumb on the scale and they can tell you exactly what to do and they can charge you to do it and all that sort of thing. So um, the discussion about whether or not midwives are choosing to be licensed so that they can best serve their clients needs rather, clients needs rather than adhering to state guidelines I thought both of your perspectives on this could be interesting to hear. It's something I struggle with personally, as a, but as a doula, I'm not regulated by a governing body. And that makes it easy for me to serve my client fully and not have to worry about someone else impacting my abilities to help them achieve their birth goals. And these are from two, two lovely people, Jackie and Adelaide in Australia. And, and this is what they write to me. They write, we could write a book, but here you are. We have lived." In both a regulated and non-regulated state, so here are the pros and cons we see with detail. In a non-regulated state, there is more freedom for the midwife to practice how they feel they need to, as well as providing mom's care that is all but unrestricted. Those women that are VBACs or geriatric or that do not fit the perfect home birth candidate can still be served. The cons are here are that basic standards are often not met by midwives and it can potentially be more dangerous for moms. We saw poor outcomes in some instances and even losses. In addition, the ability to get and carry some meds and equipment is almost impossible. In a regulated state, you get to carry those items at least to a degree based on the state and there is consumer knowledge of what they are getting from a midwife. The cons here are that a lot more women are risked out and have no choice in their care. Further, licensure is hit or miss from one state to the next with no standardization. And this causes confusion between midwives, consumers, and collaborative care. To sum it up, the pros of regulation are predominantly more consumer and collaborative understanding of basic standards, better overall outcomes for clients as there are fewer women in the available pool to have a home birth, you know, that's sort of like, I guess you're not stretched too thin, is what they're saying. Uh, fractionally better collaborative care. I'm not sure exactly what that means. More meds and equipment and slightly better reimbursement for midwives. The cons are predominantly women have fewer options as the restrictions are much greater. Licensing regulations are randomly applied across the country. And thus there's a ton of confusion. Midwives often practice off the book by doing things and accepting women that they simply don't chart due to the severe restrictions by the state. Which I, I've, I've known that to be true. That yeah, I wasn't here. If they get transferred to the hospital for in labor, you were trying a un uh, what do you call it a free birth? Yeah. Uh,
1: unassisted.
0: Unassisted birth, right? Um, so, boy, let's see. Um, here's another person that says cons of midwife licensing include minimum education regulated by medical board. Um. minimum education means the bare minimum. I mean, you have to have this, at least some education. It sounded funny when it came out of my mouth. Arizona used to have the same person in charge of midwife licensing. I'm not sure what that means. Oh, and hearing aid specialists. So the same person that did hearing aids did license. Oh, wow. Um, That that totally
1: makes sense.
0: It's only affordable to those that can afford a license only yeah. available, limits options for women and families by shrinking the box that allows them to birth with a licensed midwife. Also eradication of other kinds of midwives, many of which have more experience because they haven't been inhibited by regulations. Licensing is in, in general isn't inherently about safety or standard. And I'd like to say that, oh, hang on a second. I'd like to say that, sorry, sorry, Bree, sorry, pinwheel art. Um, I'd like to say that that's absolutely true. Licensing is never a They'll, they'll always use the safety canard, but it isn't about safety. Um, it's not, it's about collecting fees, All right? Um, the market will take care of itself. Licensing hairdressers. If somebody can't cut hair properly. They're not gonna have a lot of clients after a while. So, But no, we have to license hairdressers. Pros could include another available option for people that wanted a minimum standard of education, possible greater service to mainstream women, Easier access to testing options, medications, and medical collaboration. That's probably true. What do you think, Liz?
1: Oh my God, such a big topic.
0: Um, I got a lot more.
1: (laughs) uh, It's interesting, though, because um, uh, shoot, who's the woman that you went to see in Sedona? What's their podcast?
0: Indie Birth. Uh, hmm? Indie Birth.
1: Indie birth. Yeah. They just did uh, a podcast. I didn't finish listening to it, but they were talking about this exact same subject. And it's so funny. Yeah. Sometimes. I think
0: some of that was actually from Marin.
1: Yeah. So, um, so I gave birth the first time um, to my eldest uh, pre licensure here in California. So I have been around and aware of, what it looked like before licensure and after. And um, one of my business partners for the sanctuary when we first started, Connie Rock, also practiced prior to getting licensed and then after. So um, I know that the women who tried to push forward to get licensure really believed that it would help midwives and, um, not have to fear for being put in jail, um, would hopefully be more respected and um, be able to transport without fear. And um, I think some of that has been accomplished. Um, However, the downside in my perspective um, is a lot of what was mentioned and what I experience practicing here in California that I get so frustrated by is having to send a perfectly healthy woman to the hospital or to get a C-section because of laws. And, and what really comes down to is that that woman doesn't have a choice. That woman is being told that she has to go and get medical care for something that she may want to just allow to happen in the most natural way possible um and um midwifery for me is not necessarily something medical and i i say that to people who you know hire me like um i have those skills in case i need them but that's not what, that's not what this is about. And that's not historically what midwifery was about. And so, you know, earlier in the podcast, you talked about us putting on vacuums and I, 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 you know, it's one of those very complex issues. It's like, you know, do you want to start to go down that rabbit hole of being more and more and more and more medical when really, um, yeah, that's not necessarily what it's about, but it does get complex. And I think that there's a lot of different types of midwives out there. And I think in a perfect world, there would be the people who want to get licensed and want to be more medical and want to have that as a large part of their practice. And then there would be um, the other midwives, you know, maybe with a different terminology. They were talking, Maren and her partner were talking about you know uh birth keepers as being you know something that maybe isn't not licensed and is more um spiritual and and that also is informed consent but that the woman has a choice you know she's not forced into making these decisions that don't feel right for her and that's where i get really frustrated yeah, and,
0: and, and um I've, I've on instagram um Small Magic Birth made a post and I actually saw that you liked it. So I, I printed it out and I just wanted to read the last two paragraphs of what she wrote in this, this post. It says, I soon began to question the efficacy of licensed midwifery care as the only option. If I truly believe birth was non-medical, why would I be required to adhere to medical standards if they went against the woman's preferences? Which is sort of what you just said. Wasn't I one of those women? She herself had this whole dilemma when at home. Who would be my midwife? So I left my midwife program and pursued midwifery education elsewhere, choosing to be a trained as a lay birth attendant. Licensed midwives are put into an impossible position. Serve the woman or serve the state.
1: Yes, yes. And I think that that is a very, very good, uh, you know, gives clarity of like, who are we having to... um, be dedicated to in that respect and whoever you were reading earlier about the being a doula you you don't have that but you are limited as in terms of what you can do but when a doula walks into a hospital she's very clear I am I am here for you I'm not here for the hospital the hospital can't necessarily dictate what I do or don't do and I'm here as a licensed midwife we yeah we our hands are tied often. and Well, um, they're
0: really tied, especially when, in, you know, the thing that's most commonly that they're tied about is this 42-week thing that we have here.
1: Well, Where, you, are, a you,
0: have, you have people that are perfectly healthy and their babies are perfectly fine and their biophysical problems are perfectly fine. And then you say, if you're not in labor by tonight, I have to abandon you. I mean, yeah. technically not. I mean, I can't take care of you anymore. I won't abandon you. but I'm, So it's sort of like you have to go find a stranger to deliver your baby you now.
1: And, then- and you're forced or you're forced to stay home and not have anybody. Is that safer? So if someone says, I'm just not going to go to the hospital, right. um, is that safer than having her midwife that's been taking care of her who knows a lot of things like that, that that's the moment when the, I think that it's morally wrong to put these kind of restrictions on what a human being can decide to do or not decide to do. Um, yeah. It's not right.
0: Uh, and Tiffany just made a comment about something the government never gives permission or what, did, what what did she say exactly? Because because I did a podcast while Bliss was gone and the title of the podcast was there's no power in yes. And
1: government that, never gives power is what she said.
0: Yeah. Right, because there's no power in saying yes to something. You always say no to something. I just thought this was very interesting. Um somebody sent me the American College of OBGYN has a toolkit which is uh, double digit pages, I just printed off the first page, but it's it's a toolkit on how s- state medical associations should lobby their state legislatures to regulate midwives. So ACOG puts out a, a, a booklet on how to do that. The toolkit is designed to assist ACOG fellows to craft their own legislation on certified professional midwives, okay? This thing really burns my butt, all right? Yeah. Yeah. This is the idea that midwives are a lesser subset of obstetricians and that obstetricians have a duty to regulate midwives because they're the only ones that can, that care about the safety of the women in their state.
1: Or that should be the, the gatekeepers. The paternal, of the,
0: yeah, the paternalistic, I mean, that's, yeah. can I, you know, this is, this is one of those ones where I really want to just crush it up eight? and throw it into the round box. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. We've gotta move on. So I wanted to talk a little bit real quickly. Um, there's a new, there's a Netflix series out. I don't know if it's new or not, but it's called The Surgeon's Cut. And I think there's only four episodes. And it's on Netflix called The Surgeon's Cut. And I would highly recommend birth workers watch episode number one. It's on a maternal fetal medicine specialist named Kipros Nicolaitis. I don't know if any of you heard of him. Have you heard of him?
1: Oh, from you, yes. Oh.
0: Okay, so he is the guy that created fetal surgery, the the, the treatment for uh, diaphragmatic hernia, the treatment for twin twin transfusion syndrome. It's it's a it's just I don't know. I was mesmerized by the documentary and about the fact that he is a, you know, he talks about conformity being the the word of the day and that he himself is a non conformist, and he says and he's been battered and ridiculed by many many people in his profession for being this guy that's out doing these things that other people say it's too dangerous but he's saving lives and he's creating things and maybe they don't like his ego maybe who cares who cares he's done great things and you know nonconformity. there's there's actually i look at it as a badge of honor you have it bliss i know that i have it okay and so I feel really good when I watch this thing about him and the way he talks. So I would highly recommend it. And I, I, I sent the I, I sent the Netflix thing to my friend. Did you, did you want to say something?
1: Yeah, I was going to say like, if you really think about it, how can we ever innovate if we don't? Ha- have some form of non-conformity if everybody's just conforming there's no creation or innovation you have to think outside of the box to create something new
0: yeah but you don't yeah. always have to beat up the person that thinks outside of the box but yes, right. that's, that's what happens yeah. almost all the time thanks for the thumbs up there bethany i like that uh, <laughs> things pop up on my screen um, so I, I shared this with my colleague who's a maternal fetal medicine specialist and i won't keep i won't say her name um, and she knows him and she said, yes, yes, he's, he's amazing. He's great and stuff like that. And then we, and then she sent me something about, we started talking about the, the injection that women uh, that are recommended for people for this thing that's going around that came from a city we're not supposed to mention in a country we're not supposed to mention and all that other stuff. And we talked about it for a little bit and, I, and I, she sent me something about what Dr. Fauci said Okay. And he said, here's what it says, Fauci says, no red flags seen in 10,000 pregnant women who've received the COVID shot so far. Okay. So, So I asked her, do you believe everything that Fauci says? And she says, yes, I think he's done great work. And he, I believe everything that he says that I believe it's perfectly safe and I recommend, I shouldn't say perfectly safe, but I believe it's safe and I would recommend that pregnant women get it, okay? And my feeling is this, how is it that two people who are both smart and sane, as I consider myself to be, and I consider doctor, my friend to be, share, hear the same facts and hold completely opposite, diametrically opposed opinions on that. And we conclude with, such conviction that our opinions are right and the other person's opinions are wrong and yet it's the same set of facts. And I don't know that we have the same set of facts because I don't know what else she reads. Right. All right. But there is a lot of data out there about about the vaccine not necessarily being something that is useful in pregnant women and I want to I want to spend the most of the rest of the time talking about this, uh, not only just pregnant women, but women of reproductive age who are planning to have babies, all right? So I- And I've breastfeeding? Of, what's that? And breastfeeding? Um. No, I didn't really look into that. Okay. I didn't look into that. Okay. All right, But uh-huh. it, 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 it's gonna, breastfeeding women are gonna fall into the same category of people who probably do not need to have this shot for any re- reason because the risk category that they're in is so freaking low, all right? People in that age group, under 30, who, who, who catch COVID have a 99.997% chance of not dying. Now, I don't even know what that is. It's three per a million or something like that. Mm-hmm. Some really re- ridiculous number. So, but the Center for Disease Control has advised that pregnant women should consult their healthcare provider on whether or not to get vaccinated against COVID-19. So their healthcare provider is going to be a obstetrician. So obstetricians turn to ACOG for their you know guidelines. Okay? And ACOG th- says that the vaccine is safe and should be given to pregnant women. This is the American College of OBGYN. These are the the the, the leaders of the obstetrical profession in my country. By the way, they do differ from like the Royal College, which is more much more hesitant. Even the World Health Organization has struck a more cautious tone. Yes. Only pregnant women who are at high risk of being exposed to COVID-19 should get vaccinated. And I'm not even sure that's the case. I mean, if you're a healthcare worker and you're pregnant, should you be vaccinated? When because here's here's the here's where the real issue comes, okay? What is the risk of getting COVID to you as a pregnant woman? I'll talk about um, fertility in, in a bit, but for you as a pregnant woman and the vertical transmission to your baby versus the risk of the vaccine itself. And how do we know what the risk of the vaccine itself is? Right. How do they normally know that? How do we know about vaccines and risk? Studies. Are there any? No. No. There are no studies. There are no studies on on. No vaccine has ever been put to market without animal studies. This vaccine, from what I can, what I've read, has not been tested in animals, and certainly not tested in pregnant primates or foxes or whatever they use to look at that. All right, to see if there's effects on the fetus, or on the placenta, or on the you know. I don't know about breastfeeding, but on, on on the mother whatsoever, there's no testing whatsoever. Yet the American College of OBGYN, just like other vaccines, whoops, I said it, um, doesn't doesn't hesitate to say women should get it. Who are these people? They're supposed to be scientific, and there's and and people who who are hesitant about it are are anti-vax or anti-science. Are they out of their mind? Okay. So let's look at a little bit of data here, all right? There are anecdotal reports of women uh, who get the vaccine who within a day or two have had a stillbirth, okay? Now, could it be coincidence? Of course it could be coincidence. That happens anyway. But you have to wonder when that happens. And there's a VARES report. I have a copy of a VARES report off of the vaccine injury Let's see, it's called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System is VARES. Okay. Uh-huh. And this is a 28-week uh, um, woman. She basically, I was 28 weeks and five days when I received the first dose of the vaccine. Two days later, I noticed decreased fetal movement. Uh, the baby was not found to have a heartbeat um, the third day after the vaccine. Right. Okay. So the only issue they found was a velamentous cord insertion, which had been being followed and there was no hemorrhage or anything like that. So does that happen? Yes, it happens. But to say that that it's 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 safe when it's never been tested, and you're gonna give it to women is is and then and then and my friend who's the maternal fetal medicine specialist is all on board with this. What data do I mean, where how am I looking at things so differently and seeing it so differently? All right, I mean. I've, I've, I've dived deep into this thing, and there was, there was a va- attempt to make a vaccine for another COVID virus back in 2002. It was called SARS-COVID-1, okay? And it took, in four or five years later, they came out with a vaccine. Well, they didn't come out with a vaccine. that never got released because it didn't pass safety testing. All right. Now, this is a different type of vaccine they're doing now. This is an mRNA vaccine, which may be worse, but they found that the the initial SARS-CoV vaccine affected the syncytiotrophoblast of the placenta, all right, and and it and it caused miscarriages in experimental animals. Part of the reason it was never it never came forward. Now, when you get a vaccine, normally you get attenuated live virus, and your body eventually makes antibodies to it, and then the vaccine sort of breaks it down. And the virus is no longer inside of you. With these mRNA vaccines, they're, you're constantly being, your, your DNA, Your I think it's your transfer RNA or something, is, is coded to make a non-lethal um, uh, form of the, of the virus so that your body then bat, uh, battles it. But I think it's an ongoing thing. Now, I may be wrong on this, but I, again, I've looked at multiple sources And so if your body is constantly making a little bit of this non-lethal virus, is this going to affect your placenta? And is it going to affect when you're not even pregnant, giving it to 20-year-old women who have a 99.997% chance of not dying from this disease, okay, giving it to pregnant women, I mean, non-pregnant women who someday may try to get pregnant and then when the fetus is developing its, its placenta and it's implanting in the uterine wall, is there going to be a problem with fertility? Are there gonna be a higher rate of miscarriages? We don't know any of this, and yet we're telling people over 16 or over 18 right now to get the vaccine. They're not in, I mean, they're in some places they're low down on the totem pole, but they're being told to get, that when the time comes that they need to get the vaccine. Why would you put something in your body that, that's never been tested to prevent something that is something that's like almost impossible to happen? You're far more likely to die from so many other things at age 20 than from this that you would never stop doing in your life. And yet you're going to take this vaccine. It, it should be prohibited in people under 30. And theoretically it should be prohibited or it's extremely rare to take it when you're under 50. Because, because the chance of dying when you're under 50 is 99.9, not dying, excuse me, is, is, is so remotely low. And we don't really know what this vaccine is going to do. I keep using the word, I'm sorry, but I can't help it. And, and you know at some point I'm worried about the way the censorship is going and the, the, the scientists who come out with these sort of things. And these are board certified infectious disease people and researchers who are saying what I'm repeating here and they're being banned off of social media. They've got, you know, they're being canceled. They've lost their job. They've been fired um, for suggesting that people take hydroxychloroquine or people take ivermectin early on, which by the way, I'm taking, I've said this before I take it weekly and the last day or two, I felt like I was getting a little bit of a sore throat. Now that could be, you know, a normal sore throat that people get, but, I decided, the winter. I, yeah, yeah, so I just, but I just started to take, I'm taking my daily uh, hydroxychloroquine now, along with my zinc and my vitamin D and my vitamin C and my multivitamin <laughs> and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I'm doing that. So, but they're making it that people with voices with alternative things like Dr. Uh, Nicolaitis, you know, are, are, are going to be unable to speak. They're going to be banned, censored, fired, Um, their licenses are going to be challenged like Dr. Thomas in, in Oregon or Dr. uh, um, Zajac in Minnesota, who I talked about in the last podcast, you know, we're coming, we're, we're heading more and more toward a police state and it's frightening to me because at some point they're going to mandate you have a vaccine card. I saw this tweet that said the uh, the left is fine with vaccine cards but not voter ID. So it's like you need to have a vaccine card but but you don't have to have an ID. and and I'm not saying that. and when then we're looking at we're looking at what's going on now with with people overseas travel. There's a new executive order apparently that says that people coming in from overseas need to be tested before they're going to be allowed to enter the country, all right and you have a swab or whatever and that now they have a rapid rapid thing. But on the Southern border, we're letting people in and we're not, we're not testing them. And they've been in no social distancing uh, for, for weeks as they've been coming up toward the border. Those people can just come in the country and be released openly into the community. But if you're traveling back from, from Paris, you have to be tested. Does this, does this I mean, I, I think that people who listen to me, whether you, know, you don't have to agree on anything political at all, but you have to say that this is absurd. Yeah. This is a, this is completely unscientific what's going on. And I, and I really don't know, you know where it's going to end, but I would tell pregnant women to be very, very skeptical of this um, vaccine. I would never get this vaccine if I were pregnant. Okay. If I had underlying significant illnesses and stuff like that, I'd be very careful about my social distancing, my mask wearing, that sort of thing. That's fine. All right. But to put this thing in your body. And now we're also being fine, told that, well, we don't know if you if you get the vaccine, you might still be shedding. So you, have to wear, you, still, you still have to wear a mask and have be social distancing. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, the goalpost is moving further and further and further away. This poor field goal kicker. You know, it used to be a 20 yard field goal. Now it's an 80, 82 yard field goal. I mean, it's not possible that it's when's it going to end if you can continue to shed the, the, the viral particles. And by the way, if you get the vaccine and you're shedding the viral particles, that means the vaccine theoretically is causing you to make viral particles. Which gets back to my thing about young women who aren't pregnant yet taking the vaccine and then someday getting pregnant, but their their placenta may have a problem. And we don't know that, but we know from, two, from the SARS-CoV-1 that it did, that the vaccines they were using or attempting to use from that did. Now, if anything I'm saying is false and somebody can show me that, I will retract it immediately. All right. But I got this from two very trusted sources. And that's where I, my, my lovely friend who's a maternal fetal medicine specialist, I can't have this conversation with her. And that's another. Did you send her
1: that, send her that data and she still couldn't hear? That?
0: I sent her something, but I haven't heard back from her. And I think that that's mm-hmm. typically what happens is that it's un- too uncomfortable for people to do this. And so You, this is, this is almost more divisive than, 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 than left, right divide or, you know, um, uh, Anaheim duck LA King divide or, or whatever it's,
1: it's life and death. Um, yeah. The only thing I was thinking of when you were saying that is that term confirmation bias, you know, you were like, how could we both be getting the same information and feel so differently about it? And, you know, that's what, that's what came to
0: mind. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I guess we have to leave it at that. I had a, a couple more you things. You do. 11. I know. I know. <laughs> so, as you see, somebody says, what is, What's this last comment? I have no reason to believe otherwise based on what I've read. I thought it may be temporary. What else does she say? I thought it may be temporary.
1: I thought it may be temporary, but hearing you speak could be longer term.
0: Which, oh, you mean as far as. What lockdowns or. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, uh, uh, As far as the transmitting of the viral particles and stuff. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't think any, no one knows it's a new technology and it's a new thing. Okay. So again, I guess we have to sign off. Bliss. It's really good to have you back.
1: Love you. I got that to spend cool.
0: two hours with you this morning. So I feel really, really lucky.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some great things are happening to the podcast. It's going to be fun.
0: Yeah. We got some great things. That, yeah. We got some things we'll be, we'll be talking about it. Uh, we're going to try to do something special for next week's podcast, which would, would have been 200, but <laughs> it's 200 And uh, yeah, we're going to do some rebranding and some other stuff. So we'll, we'll keep you posted again. This has been Dr. Sue's podcast episode number 200. Uh, you, you know how to reach us. I'm not even going to go through it again. It's going to be back up on your podcast app. So follow us there. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at our Instagram posts. Drsuespodcast.com has it as well
1: and share it and like it and and if you love it make sure and leave us a review because it really helps other people find the podcast
0: and we know that that for those of you who sat in with us live today and for anybody who listens to us for the for the whole hour you know that an hour of your day uh once a week is a, a lot to ask because you have so many distractions and so many things to be doing and we are really grateful and appreciative and i think that gratitude is one of the Best traits a person can have, and we don't say it enough. So, thank you all for being there. And until next time, we'll see you.
1: Bye bye.